Welcome to this latest edition of the Freshfields podcast. My name is Nigel Gleeson and I'm a corporate partner based in Singapore where I advise clients on their M&A transactions. I'm delighted to be joined today by my colleagues Andrea Basham, based in our New York office, and David Chintowski, who works uh, in our Berlin office, both of whom specialise in a variety of transactional, corporate governance and fundraising issues. Today we're going to talk about the challenges of raising capital in a post-COVID world. Without further ado, we'll jump straight into it. Andrea, if I could start with you, obviously a time of, of massive change where investors are very circumspect about the opportunities they're looking at. What are you seeing and what is our team in the US seeing happening in the, in the fundraising market in the US? Yeah, hi Nigel. Hi David, nice to see you both. It's hard to believe that we're sitting here five months, at least in the US, after we went into lockdown and having this conversation, because I remember having it so many times when this first started and we all wondered what was going to happen, what investors were going to do, what was going to happen to startups and then to larger companies needing financing. I think the realistic answer today, sitting where we are, is that both companies and investors are all over the map in terms of liquidity needs, ability to access financing, and the negotiations they're having with investors. Initially, we all thought activity was going to go down across the board. I think that the numbers have proven, for Q1 at least, that it certainly did as a matter of volume and as a matter of total invested dollars. What I think was more interesting, if you look at some of the statistics that have come out in the last several months, is that first, the smaller companies have been impacted more across the board. So you see a much more significant decline in series C to series B rounds on average. On the other hand, we've seen a lot of very large investments into later stage companies, some that have been headline deals that people didn't expect to see in COVID. And then also activity has obviously really been different depending on the industry. We've seen some industries surge, right? E-commerce, healthcare, some tech, fintech in the pandemic in a way that we didn't actually expect it to surge as much in the first and second quarters. And then there are obviously plenty of industries, travel being the most obvious, where activity has declined significantly. So I think where we're sitting today is that we all are still talking about the dry powder that's out there. I think that investors are kicking the tires more than they were prior to the pandemic in terms of their diligence and their decision-making around investments. But I think that we're hopeful that investment and activity will in fact continue and we're seeing lots of deals. David, what about in Europe? Because I can see a number of parallels between what Andrea is seeing across the US and Asia. How have things gone over the last few months, particularly in that acute March through June, July period where things were really impacted through COVID? Yeah, uh, so first of all, hello. Um, thank you for having me. And uh, yes, I can echo what Andrea said uh, pretty much. Uh, so what has happened here during the first, uh, let's say, six months of this year is that we've seen obviously a drop in numbers. So we've seen a drop in particular in financing rounds into new startups. 
Also, we've seen a drop in total uh, investment amounts. So this is pretty much the same observation, I would say, as you've seen in the US. But at the same time, we've also seen quite a few larger rounds into existing portfolio companies where you can see that the relevant companies had obviously liquidity issues and the current investor base has decided to sort of step in and provide that liquidity on the basis of a sound and stable business case. So it has been a decline, but it hasn't been so sharp as we feared. So we are quite optimistic, actually, that this will pick up uh, very soon. David, if I can jump in there, there are some parallels there with what we're seeing in Asia. You've mentioned existing investors re-upping, I guess, maybe the phrase, into existing investments. I think here we're hearing a lot about a similar sort of activity. We've been advising clients on putting you know, necessary funding into startup businesses. But we are also seeing down rounds. So we are seeing valuations go down and that's becoming less public in a sense because there's obviously a sensitivity around the, the PR aspects of that. But there are certainly bridging arrangements with discounts. There feels like there's a, a lot of maintenance of assets currently ongoing, but that as we get towards Q4 of this year, where some of the government supports start to fall away after existing investors have perhaps exhausted their appetite to put more funds on the table, we may see more distress in the growth of the startup sector, which frankly we haven't seen on the basis that everyone predicted sort of February, March, when activity hit the skids. And as, as Andrea said, there are some sectors that have been particularly hard hit. And I think of the OTAs and, and, and the travel industry in, in particular. I just wondered if that sort of dovetails with what your team is seeing. Um, I would say yes and no. So I don't think that we've seen so many down rounds just yet. And I think the main reason for that is that investors, but also the companies themselves, perceive this crisis only as a temporary crisis. So they don't think this is going to last. And I mean, to be honest, we are seeing the first signs of relief in the markets, I would say. And based on that, what they've resorted to is rather than doing another financing round, they will do some sort of bridge financing in terms of a convertible where you don't have to agree on a valuation, but you also only have to agree on a certain floor and cap, like a corridor basically for this valuation. And on that basis, urgent liquidity needs are met. And at the same time, you avoid something like a down round, which is obviously bad PR, but also a dilution for existing investors. No, and I think that's, and I'm sure, Andrea, if that's a theme you're seeing emerging as well. Yeah, in fact, I think that's exactly right. I agree with you, David, and that's very similar to what we're seeing in the U.S. I think we've seen fewer down rounds than we expected to see, and we've seen a lot of existing investors in cap tables being willing to fund companies through alternative investments to equity, such as convertible notes, so as to bridge the gap without having to put companies and boards in the position not only of doing a down round, but of coming up with a valuation at all in an environment that's really unstable. Seeing instruments that have built-in discounts ultimately, or at least the ability to follow through into a round um, that protects value. One thing that we thought we'd see a lot of, and we haven't seen yet, is consolidation. You often hear 
in the press and with some of our clients, people talk about winners and losers coming out of the last six months. And from my perspective in Southeast Asia, we haven't seen the dramatic sort of losers versus winners theme emerging. There is a view that that may happen in, you know, into 2021, particularly as there are a number of startups who run relatively comparable businesses. But again, just to throw it out there, maybe David to you first, do you think there's opportunity out there potentially for investors looking at a consolidation play? So the, the consolidation that you've mentioned, and also the winners and losers theme that you just alluded to, I mean, what we have here, at least in Germany, so that, that doesn't probably apply to continental Europe as a whole, but what we have here in Germany is also um, certain alleviation measures put in place by the government. In particular, we've suspended the requirement to file for insolvency. And that is at least, in my opinion, one of the things that play a significant role in why you don't potentially see as many losers at the moment. Because they can just simply continue with their business, at least for the time being, and are not as desperate to sell the assets they have for the moment. And I was just wondering also if you have similar regulatory frameworks in in the US and Asia that would come into play here as well. In Asia and across Asia broadly, a lot of jurisdictions have done something similar and brought in a moratorium on on insolvency proceedings. Most of those are anticipated to drop away in in Q4. There's also, stepping back broadly across the investor environment, there is central government pressure on banks, we understand, to not be pushing businesses too hard at the moment. But again, that sort of support, be it soft or hard, um, from government in terms of um, providing actual funding to businesses to stay active or for the banks to sort of hold back will stop at a certain point. Andrea, I'm not sure whether that's sort of something that you've been seeing in the US. Yeah, I think the story in the US is a little bit different. So early on, we certainly saw the government step in with several different options of financing packages for different companies, mostly depending on the size of the company, whether counting on a revenue basis or by number of employees. Some of those rescue packages or or availability of capital were dependent on putting certain measures in place at the company level, such as not laying off employees. And so certain companies were able to take advantage of them and certain weren't. Interestingly, in talking about startups, one of the things that we faced here in the U.S. were the strings that came attached to what we called the PPP loans that the government was offering to small companies. Those loans required a company to have fewer than 500 employees. And interestingly, the way the rules worked, they counted the employees of any institutional investor in the cap table towards the cap. And so In order to be able to take advantage of those loans, companies had to be able to show that there was not control by anyone whose employees would tip the scale effectively. And what that meant was that interestingly, early on in the pandemic, we spent a significant amount of time revising, in some cases, certificates of incorporation, and in a lot of cases, shareholders' agreements to strip private equity funds, venture funds of some of their control rights so that these small companies could in fact take advantage of these small loans from the government. 
in some cases, the inability to take advantage of those loans due to an institutional investor in the cap table actually, I think, resulted positively for the companies because it led to negotiations with the institutional investors themselves. And back to David points, the investors stepping up with some sort of bridge financing in lieu of giving up veto rights or other indicia of control that would have tipped the scale and precluded the company from getting the financing. On a broader scale, I think in the U.S., the financing packages were all seen as short term. I don't think that companies were looking at government financing either as a long term solution or as something that was going to be re-upped again and again over time. So the companies that were able to get funds got funds, and I think now we're moving on and expecting the world to go back to normal and not expecting to see more government rescue packages here in the startup or growth phases. If I can pick up on something you you mentioned, which is investors taking the opportunity to perhaps recalibrate their relationship with the company or among themselves as a result of the uncertainty and, and perhaps as a result of the company saying, you know, you either do something or we have no company, or um, the investors saying, here's a check, but here are the conditions. The key balancing or the, the tightrope act on these sorts of investments is founders having control, at least in some way, shape or form, and driving the business, but backed by, frankly, institutional funding. Do you see either currently in the market or do you anticipate that a recalibration of that relationship may occur or have occurred? It's a big question, Nigel, and there are so many questions that go with it. One thing we're seeing, which I think you're hinting at, is pressure from certain institutional investors, both institutional investors already in the cap table of companies and institutional investors with a lot of money to spend and a lot of negotiating power over those spending dollars. In companies where they have institutional investors in the cap table who are exerting pressure against the founders or against other institutional investors, we've been having a lot of conversations with companies and with boards about their fiduciary duties in thinking about these negotiations with investors that are exerting pressure. One interesting phenomenon in the U.S. in particular in the last several years has been that in part due to readjustment of some SEC rules about eight years ago, we are now seeing companies with a much greater number of shareholders in the cap table before companies are forced to go public. And what that means here is that you're seeing private companies that have a lot more typical investors that are in it for the economics, that aren't looking for control, that aren't looking for day-to-day oversight over management. And so you're seeing the Fidelities and the T. Rowe Prices and other investors like that in cap tables. And what that means is that when founders are sitting down to talk to other institutional investors about bringing in additional financing, and those investors are exerting pressure. These founders have to be thinking not only about themselves, but about the other investors in the cap table and how dilution is going to affect those investors, how giving over more control of the company is going to affect those investors. And from a fiduciary perspective, that's very important because there are certainly plaintiffs firms out there in the US that are now looking at private companies 
in more of a way, like they've looked at public companies in the past. So I think, Nigel, the, the most simple answer to your question is I do think the dynamic is changing. I think it's not just between founders and institutional investors, but it's founders together with perhaps non-controlling investors in their cap table and thinking about the cap table from a more holistic perspective. That's very interesting. I want to come back to something that we see in, in Asia, which is some of these startups that get to decacorn and above how you actually going to, to, to push an exit and then whether the circumstances over the last six months have perhaps changed exit horizons and the way that investors are thinking about exits and perhaps have uh, created opportunity for some you know, strategic investors who are, have their eye on assets and may already be on the cap table. But David, just from your perspective, in terms of the founder-investor dynamic, um, and you, you've mentioned that you, you are seeing more in terms of re-up and existing investors putting more money on the table. Is that dynamic shifting from your perspective? Yes, I believe so. I think along the same lines or similar lines anyway, as, as Andrea just pointed out, there is certainly some investors out there who are trying to take advantage of the situation and try to improve, maybe even beyond the red line, their economic or governance position in, in any given venture. But I would say these are the exceptions. And so the, the general rule is, and that's also governed by the sort of trilogue that, that Andreas mentioned. So, so you're not having this sort of negotiation between two sides, founders on the one hand and new investors on the other hand, but you also have the current stakeholders, the current investors, and they obviously also have a stake in that relationship, essentially. And so from my perspective, we are seeing a shift in power, yes, but it is not as dramatic as one probably would have thought uh, six months ago when we saw the markets basically plummet. That also plays into the, the role which is very unique to the startup environment. As, as an investor, you're in, investing not only in a product and not only in a business case, but at the end of the day, you're also investing very heavily into the founding team and the team that drives that. So the last thing you want to do is to completely ruin that relationship and so from that perspective, I think that there are the vast majority of investors, they don't overexert their pressure and they don't abuse their pressure and their position, but they're rather trying to collaborate and sort of like steer and navigate through this crisis together with the founders. And I think that what you've touched on there is really interesting and a real pressure point because these structures are inherently set up you know, for control in many respects to, to reposit and remain with a founding team, but it is structured to flood the ordinary equity ultimately at a point in time. And if there's any, if anyone's going to take a hit on economics and therefore being incentivized to perform and innovate and be an entrepreneur, etc., it's the founding team. So I can imagine that there will be ongoing discussions around finding a way to ensure that the ordinary equity, for instance, remains attractive and that the founding team remains incentivized. And those are some discussions that we are having on an ongoing basis in Asia on some investments that our clients have been looking at. And I think it comes back around to the point, Andrea, that you were making around those companies that have perhaps not taken advantage of, of government support and have used the opportunity to sit down and say, we need to recalibrate how this works to ensure that we can move our way through some of these issues. So I must say, I feel we're focusing on the downside here a little. There have obviously been some fantastic success stories, both for investors and for startups over the last six months. 
In particular, I think, Andrew, you mentioned in e-commerce and in healthcare, and, and we did a deal early in January this year for General Atlantic PE Fund who invested into Runguru, which was an, an Indonesian online education business. And in a, a world that we've now moved into in six months, an investment such as that seems somewhat prescient. Given that so many of these startup vehicles and growth investments are technology-linked, they're very well positioned, you would have thought, to come through a period like this in, in relatively robust shape. I mean, I know that we've seen a number of businesses in Southeast Asia, so Ninja Van, which is a logistics business, Redmart, which is a, an online food delivery business that have all perhaps had to, to grapple with the logistics of, of their customer base suddenly swelling overnight as people couldn't leave their homes. But as, you know, as we understand it, have come through in fantastic shape because people are now more reliant than ever on using technology to deliver goods and services. And it feels as if yeah, that, that is, is very definitely something that's not going to go away anytime soon. So I wonder from your perspective, are there any success stories or any particular deals that you think are really interesting in your market that perhaps illustrate businesses that have come through the last six months in, in good shape? I think that we've certainly seen some late stage growth based financing rounds at unicorns or, you know, just pre-unicorns in the tech space, in the fintech space, online stock exchanges, e-commerce companies that have been both at higher valuations and for very, very large investment amounts. We've also seen strategics coming into tech companies in particular, into healthcare companies. I think that one of the big success stories in this market has been that there are corporates that are sitting on large reserves of cash, and we've seen some of them spending that cash in ways that have helped mid and late stage companies. Another example of that, of course, is Google's investment in Geo, which is the Indian telecom company that we worked on a short while ago. Uh, David, from your perspective. Again, uh, can only echo what, what Andrea said. So obviously, there's differences between different sectors. We mentioned travel, we mentioned food, delivery services, etc., etc. But there is not only losers in this environment. I, I completely agree with that. Yes, it's, it's also a time for great opportunity if you've got the right idea. Absolutely. I think it's been interesting. I mean, in, in Asia, we, the view across the market was that investor sentiment, particularly with respect to some of the larger cap startups or platforms, had become more cautious. And this was sort of December, January turn of the year. And perhaps by reference, you know, sort of looking at some of the larger global businesses that have emerged from the startup phase, it gave investors pause to consider how big some of these decacorns could potentially get and what implications that had for an exit. And we have a we have Gojek and Grab in Southeast Asia, which are very large super app platforms that deliver a number of services to customers across the region. There's been a you know, fantastic success story in Southeast Asia, which is the Garina, or formerly the Garina business, and now C, which is listed in New York. And I think over the last 18 months, the statistics, something like the share price has gone up 880%. It's been a phenomenal success. I mean, fantastic team, and we were very lucky to be involved with a number of investors before it went public in its startup sort of growth phase. But it provides a platform of e-commerce that's diversified 
um, across the region and, and has a, obviously a, a big uptake from customers. But if I step back from all of that, if I'm an investor into startups and a lot of our financial sponsors in, in Asia continue to be very eager about the opportunity, we've actually seen in Southeast Asia, if you believe the figures, there was the absolute dollar of investments in the second quarter of this year was double the year before. I think if you break that down, that's into smaller cap sort of VC funding rounds. The thing that continues to vex investors is exactly what an exit looks like. And we have some success stories around public markets, but I come back to the consolidation theme. What is the end game for a number of investors? Because a number of these businesses are not necessarily cash positive, if that's the right way to frame it. And so just interested to see whether you're finding in discussions you're having that, again, perhaps a recalibration of thinking about exit and whether public markets are actually viable or the right, the right way to go, um, and whether the last six months have impacted some of that sentiment. Well, certainly in the U.S., depending on what periodical you read, IPOs are anywhere between back and about to take over the world again. So I think the general vibe now, five months, six months into this in the U.S., is that certainly IPO activity is increasing. The public markets are viable. I think that that's the general consensus. And I think there are, and we have seen a lot of IPOs in the pipeline. And again, if you're reading the periodicals, you'll see that those IPOs in the pipeline are not, in fact, just in healthcare and e-commerce and some of the industries that have really succeeded in the pandemic, but even in travel. So it's going to be interesting to see how those IPOs play out. Many of them have now filed with the SEC, and so we are going to start seeing pricings in late Q2 and early Q3. So the IPO market as a viable exit strategy, I think, is back. What's been interesting in the U.S. also has, of course, been the SPAC market, which I would be remiss not to mention because it is so hot in the U.S. right now. Every time you open the newspaper, right, SPAC is the first four, S-P-A-C are the first four letters you see at the top of any business article. It's been really interesting to watch that space, right, because we're seeing new SPACs being formed every day that are looking for targets. And then we know that there are hundreds of SPACs out there that have been formed and are either coming up on their two-year deadline to find and execute on an acquisition or that are somewhere between the early stage and two-year mark, but certainly have available capital and are waiting. I think SPACs have become a viable alternative for a couple of reasons. First, it, it's obvious immediate access to capital, but also to the extent that the acquisition price is obviously larger than the funds that the SPAC has. These sponsors have access to capital from other institutional investors that they can get in the form of pipe financing in some cases of more traditional loans that perhaps the target wouldn't have access to on its own. Nigel, to your point about consolidation, one of the interesting things that we're also seeing in the world of SPACs is, of course, the opportunity for consolidation and SPACs thinking about opportunities to merge two companies in an industry underneath them in a way that perhaps those two companies might not be able to do on their own. And thank you for giving us a new title 
for our podcast, SPACs, so hot right now. Uh, (laughs) David, over to you. Yes. We came from a slightly different base than potentially in the US when talking about exits, right? I mean, IPO exits, public exits, they are not always at the forefront of one's hat when one thinks about how to exit an uh, venture in Europe, I would say anyway. So most of the times you keep thinking about a private exit, to be honest, or at least a, let's say, um, a majority acquisition by a fund. But having said this, there are, of course, a number of of unicorns that have emerged during the past years, which have been listed on either the German or the London or or any other major um, stock exchange. And I don't think that this has fundamentally changed, to be honest. So I don't think that the, the, the basic thinking about how to exit and when to exit has been significantly impacted by this crisis also because, I mean, it's, it's only, quote unquote, it's only six months, right? And maybe it's going to last for a little bit longer. We are already seeing sort of silver lining on the end of the tunnel, and not only in terms of health, but also in terms of economic viability. So I don't think that this crisis has had a huge impact on, on how to think about access, to be honest. That's really interesting. I'd like to go slightly lateral from where we've been. And I guess as an observation, in Southeast Asia, we see a number of growth businesses that have the Chinese tech giants on the share register or invested. They're very focused on being part of a broader tech ecosystem and are very invested in that and active in the jurisdiction. I wonder, sort of thinking about that and, and looking at current geopolitical or macro, and, and I know we've talked about we could do a couple of hours in a separate podcast on this, but I look to the US and see what's in the press on, on ByteDance, TikTok. We, we see in Hong Kong uh, you know, a flurry of, of capital markets and listing activity as a lot of Chinese businesses that pursued a US listing are coming back to look for a, a dual listing in Asia because of new rules around certain things that will need to comply with in the US. Without understanding, I guess, myself exactly what the share registers look like for a lot of growth businesses in your parts of the globe, do you think that the current tensions and the direction of travel in US-China relations will result in investor opportunities as there will be potentially a little bit of upheaval in some of these growth businesses? Or on the flip side, is are they the Chinese tech businesses and investors perhaps less invested in your part of the world? I think that there are two issues at the very least, obviously, inherent in what you're getting at, Nigel. So first, Asian Chinese in particular businesses in and of themselves and how they're operating in the US and the regulations that they need to comply with at least under this administration, going to be continue to be difficult. Compliance with data privacy laws and the U.S.'s approach to any collection of data by Chinese businesses is going to continue to be an issue. We're obviously right now at a point in the U.S. with the election cycle and the elections coming in November that I think although we all have our hopes and dreams, and I won't venture to discuss what those are on this podcast, things could change dramatically. And I think everybody recognizes that. But separately from Chinese companies coming into the U.S. and needing to comply with our regulations and U.S. pushback, we also, of course, have the foreign direct investment rules. And so that is something that affects 
companies that are looking for funds, and there are obviously funds from outside the U.S. that are incredibly significant opportunities for companies that are growing in the U.S., there has been more stringent approach to foreign direct investment in the U.S. of late. In COVID, it's been very interesting because companies that were not pre previously viewed as critical technology businesses have now fallen within the scope of CFIUS review because they're producing necessary medical equipment or whatever it may be. Again, I don't know what that's going to look like in six months or nine months, but certainly in the foreseeable future, CFIUS and foreign direct investment is something that we're thinking about with respect to every financing coming from outside the U.S. And I'll let David speak to it, but we're having these conversations in Europe as well, obviously, and in Australia and in so many jurisdictions where governments have really imposed more stringent reviews and standards than we had seen in the past. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, we have seen the same thing here in Europe, both inbound and outbound. And we've had several clients and transactions where we had to restructure the transaction in a way so that the investment would be possible, carve out of U.S. parts, but also um, obviously legislators all over the continent have imposed new rules. So it's gotten much more protective in the last couple of months and also much more nationalistic driven, I maybe one could say. So yeah, that is definitely a challenge and we're trying to help where we can. I mean, th th there are limits obviously, right? I mean, some things you can restructure in a way that you can still pull through with the investment, but some things are just not feasible any longer. And, and I think we are certainly seeing, and maybe we, we remain as always optimistic, that a lot of Asian focus pivoting to, to Asia. And we are seeing, I guess, arguably former China focus pivoting to India. And we've seen some great transactions there recently, and it has been a, a fantastic market for growth opportunities over the last four or five years for some of our clients. But you know, there remains a lot of dry powder. As Andrea said, there remains a lot of strategic investors or corporates with cash to invest. And I think we're all you know, hoping and waiting for the tidal wave that comes towards Q4 of this year. Okay, well, thanks for that, David uh, and, and Andrea, for joining uh, me today on this podcast. I found it a very uh, interesting discussion, and we look forward to uh, bringing further podcasts to our listeners in the future. Thank you.